Grace and mercy and peace be to you from our God and Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Amen. Please be seated. Well, happy 150th to all of you. You don't look a day over 120, which would have been about when I was here last. Uh, Nancy and I are happy to be with you this weekend. We have many happy memories of our five years here at Emmanuel. Uh, I went and looked back at some of my records, and I realized that just in five short years, I did uh, 29 weddings, 77 baptisms, and believe it or not, 55 funerals in five years. That seems like a lot. It was a time for making new friends. It was a time for losing old friends. And of course, this place is special because our grandson, Joshua, was born while we lived here. And those of you who maybe remember little Joshua, he's now 30 years old and is the head of data for one of the top uh, companies. Well, they rank number 66 in the Inc. 100, number one in Texas. Uh, Josh also was privileged to attend Emmanuel Lutheran School for a number of years before our daughter decided to flee to the south, to Texas, with him a number of years ago. Uh, by the way, Nancy and I live in Branson, Missouri. Uh, normally, I would have been uh, working at the missional community that I started about three months ago. So, no, I am not retired yet. We started a missional community in a coffee house called The Grind. And when I left, I wrote a note last night to the guy who is uh, taking over for me, I said, well, it's uh, snowing, maybe four to eight inches, uh, and they wrote back and said, well, it rained this morning, but it's 75 and clear right now. <laughs> so thank you for inviting me north at this time of the year. <laughs> Some of you may remember that when I was here, I could look out of my office window when it was out in the uh, school area and when we moved into the new office building. I would often look out at the water tower, and it said, Belvedere, the right place. And I used to tell people we should get up there sometime and change that and write, Emmanuel, the right place. And I always felt that way, that it was Emmanuel was the right place to be. It was really the right place to be for a new pastor. I came here not as a young pup out of the seminary, but I was almost 40 years old when I first came here. But it could not have been a better place for me to be, nor could I have had a better friend and mentor than Pastor Willie. And I look forward to seeing him and Helen again today. They were the most kind and gracious and encouraging people, and I have many fond memories of Pastor Willie. Pastor Willie had a unique sense of humor. When I was installed, he actually picked the sermon hymn, which was called, Have No Fear, Little Flock. And I think it was his way of saying, look, I will take care of rubbing the old sheep in this church, and don't worry, he's not going to hurt you. He's going to push you a little bit, he'll challenge you a little bit, but don't worry about him. It was also a blessing to arrive in 1986 with two other people, Paul and Jennifer Baker. Some of you will remember them. Paul was the new principal, and Jennifer very quickly became our director of Family Life Ministries. And if you want to see how everything kind of works around to a final circle... I'm kind of on the old folks tour right now. This is my fourth anniversary service to preach at. I've got one more to do on May the 19th when Paul will be retiring after 40 years in the teaching ministry. The last 20 years at Redeemer Lutheran, Church, Lutheran School in Springfield, Missouri, where I'm privileged to be able to teach uh, a, a couple of Bible classes regularly for them. I would also be remiss if I wouldn't remember my administrative assistant when I was here, and that was Elaine Ressler. She was a very special person to me. 
She used to have a little cartoon hanging by her desk that said, This ministry protected by a tax secretary. And uh, she was very good at seeing to it that the right people were in the right places. Uh, I just really enjoyed working with her. She had a son, too, by the name of Phil. Some of you will remember Phil. In fact, he'll be here in a couple of months when you have your confirmation celebration. But Phil and I also have a track record. I confirmed him at Emmanuel Lutheran. I actually preached at his ordination at Emmanuel here in Belvedere. And then later I installed him as my associate pastor at Lord of Life, where I served for 13 years down the road in La Fox. I also would be remiss if I didn't say thank you on behalf of Cheryl Gizicki, who has been my teaching partner at prison for the last six years, uh, for your great help in seeing to it that we can take Bibles and give them to the inmates, both at Hunt Correctional, uh, it's a new prison we've added there in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and of course Angola, where I've been working for over 20 years. We have handed out now over 2,200 Bibles, and what a blessing. And I could talk a long time about the ministry in prison and what that's like. If you're worried that Cheryl is intimidated at all, she is not. The guys treat her with great respect, and she is a wonderful teacher. Now, this morning, as we kind of kick off this 150th anniversary, I want to encourage you through God's word and um, also to challenge you to continue making a difference. For 150 years, you have made a difference in the lives of people. You've made a difference in this community. But we don't stop here. We want you to continue to make a difference in your own personal lives and as a congregation. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we gather today, we gather today to celebrate. We celebrate not only the resurrection. We had a great time last Sunday, but we can't just leave Easter there and kind of forget about it and just get on with daily life. Because we have the resurrection story to share with people. Because that's the story that makes a difference in people's lives. We also pray that you would bless our time together this morning as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You've already heard the scripture reading today, uh, but I'm going to put it up on the screen one more time. I'm going to use the text from Philippians chapter 1. And this Bible passage uh, begins with an enormous challenge. So I'm going to challenge you today, but encourage you at the same time. It starts out by saying, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, when I looked at this text, I saw that there are at least three key words here. And the first key word is only. Now, some of you can look at that, and you can look at that a long time, and you can say, hold it. I do not see that word only there. Well, the reason you won't see it there, because it's not in, in the usual English text. But if you looked at it in the Greek text, the originals, uh, you would find out that this verse begins with a Greek word, manos, which means only. Now, Paul is in prison when he writes these words, and he doesn't know whether he's going to be set free or whether he's going to die in prison. But he says there's just one thing, only one thing he wants the people in Philippi to know. Do you remember that movie City Slickers? There was this guy named Curly, and they asked him one time what the secret to life was. He just held up that one finger. He said, just one thing. Now, I guess I would say if there's only one thing you remember today... It would be the same thing that Paul wanted the people there to remember, and that was to live lives worthy of the gospel. And that's the second word. Worthy means to balance the beam. It refers to balancing the scale so that both sides are even. 
To live worthy of the gospel means that you that you live your life so that your life gives proper weight to all that God has already done for you. Now, the message translation, the Bible puts it this way. Live in such a way that you are a credit to the message of Jesus Christ. And that third word, of course, is conduct, which means to live as a citizen of heaven. Now, you and I are citizens of the United States, but more importantly, we're citizens of heaven. Now, to paraphrase an old question, I've heard this many, many years ago. It goes this way. If you were arrested for being a citizen of heaven, would there be enough evidence to convict you? That's an interesting question, because true Christians ought to be living in such a way that no one can deny their true identity. If people don't know that you are a Christ follower, I don't know, are you living under a rock someplace or hiding? Let me make three observations about this text. Let me move on. One of them is that this salvation to be real must change the way that we live. I mean, think about that. Are you different because of Jesus in your life? Are you different from people who don't have Jesus in their life? The second thing to remember is that unbelievers, these other people who are watching you all the time, draw conclusions about Jesus by the way you live. Now, there are a fair number of people that know me in my community as being a pastor. They know me as the grind guy because on Saturday nights I'm in a coffee shop trying to minister to people who don't normally want to come to church, but they know I'm there. I'm in that coffee shop six mornings a week, only because they're not open seven. And there are people who actually look at me, and they're kind of watching sometimes. I realized that because one of the young baristas one time said, do you know, some people kind of watch what you're doing over there. And I said, why do you think they're watching? They say, because they want to know whether this guy who is a pastor is a good guy or not. And I suppose if I wouldn't say thank you when they brought my drink, people go, yeah, he's not a very thankful person. But people watch you if they know that you are a Christ follower. And the third thing I would raise is that in an increasingly pagan climate, and guess what? We are living in an increasingly pagan climate in our country. We can make a huge impact simply by the way that you and I live. And this is particularly important for us now in the 21st century because the surrounding culture that we live in, I don't know what it's like in Belvedere, but I can tell you what it's like in Missouri. Uh, it is increasingly hostile to biblical truth. There's almost no middle ground anymore in our country on any issue, moral or spiritual or political or racial or educational. That means that only those people who know what they believe are and willing to express it will get a hearing in the marketplace of ideas. See, when Paul wrote these words, he, he didn't know what he was ever going to get out of prison. He didn't know whether he was going to die there or whether he was going to actually get back to these people and see them one more time. That's why he said, folks, there's just one thing. There's one thing I want you to do. Only, you know, stand up for the gospel. Make a difference with people's lives. Now, I have four different impacts I want to talk about. And I've got part of the scripture here. I want you to read the scripture that you see up there with me. It says, stand firm. In one spirit. See, that's uh, that's our first impact, to stand without division. And that word stand firm describes an old Roman military term where the soldiers used to stand back to back in a circle with all of their weapons pointed out. That's the strongest 
method of battle. Now, can you imagine that? Seeing about ten guys back to back holding swords and spears out. See, impacting the world begins as Christ's followers when we stand together in one spirit. Now, I coached basketball for about 18 years before going into the ministry. And I don't know how many times I ever told teams, look, guys, we are either going to win this together or we are going to lose this together. And as a pastor, I would say the same thing to my congregation. We're either going to win this together or we're going to lose this together. We are not to divide. We need to be together as a team. We cannot get distracted by what I would call trivial issues. You know, there are already way too many barriers in the body of Christ today. We divide ourselves by race. We divide ourselves by skin color. We divide ourselves by geography. Uh, We divide ourselves by worship style or modes of baptism. And by God, we divide ourselves with denominational affiliation. I think there's something like 30 or 40 different variations of Lutherans in America. You'd think that Lutherans could at least get along. And to make matters worse, we make we spend way too much time squabbling over secondary issues and not enough time grabbing a hold of our Bibles and teaching people the biblical narrative to show them what's indeed in this book and how to make connections between various stories. And this is kind of a scandal in the church because it hinders the work of God. When will we understand that it's unity that makes the gospel beautiful? Now, Jesus made a promise in John chapter 13. He said that the world, uh, that men would know who we are, that we are disciples, if we love one another. And I wonder sometimes whether as church people, and I'm talking about church people all over the place, not specifically about this church or the church I go to, but I wonder sometimes what people think about us knowing that we are divided on so many issues. See, when we say God loves you, unbelievers often hear it through the static of our intramural mudslinging. The message that comes through sometimes for people is, well, God loves you, but we really don't like each other very much in our own church. And sometimes it's no matter, it's no wonder that they really don't want what we have. But there's a second impact. Let's read this scripture together. Contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Now, that word contending comes from the Greek sunatholeo. Uh, We get the English words athlete or or athletic. It's kind of like a running back uh, who is straining to get that football across that imaginary vertical line to score a touchdown. And so what Paul is saying is we need to make it we need to make maximum effort for the sake of the gospel in our world. Not kind of half hearted, not lukewarm, but we really need to be working at getting the gospel out to as many people as possible. And then he said, contending as one man for the faith. Now, some of you probably wonder if I'm going to continue to give you a Greek lesson today. No, I'm going to switch to an English lesson here. When you see this little definite article, the, before that word faith, it almost always refers to the objective side of faith, not our inner belief, but rather the things in which we believe. Now, the faith of the gospel encompasses a great body of Christian truth. It involves what we believe to be true about God, what we believe to be true about Jesus, what we believe to be true about the Holy Spirit. What we believe to be true about human nature or sin or salvation by grace through faith 
without good works. Now, put all of this together. And what this means is we are to unitedly join hearts and hands using all the resources we have to spread the gospel by every means possible to every person possible. Now, well, let me explain what that what this is, what this would look like or what this could mean. It means that there is a faith we need to know. It's kind of surprising to me that after many years in ministry, people ask me, how do you know so much about this book? Can I show you a little secret? This is how you do it. You open it. You don't use it for collecting, you know, prom flowers and pressing them. You don't use them to hide last year's uh, Christmas letter that you wrote or you got from somebody else. You actually open it. You read it. I don't know how many years in a row now I've read through the Bible. I've read through the Bible every year. And I'm nowhere close to some people. I know one person, Harry Went, who's the president of Crossways International. I asked him one time, how many times have you actually read through the Bible? He said, I stopped counting at 100. Now, I asked him that question 20 years ago. I have no idea how many times he's been through there. But we need to know what it is we believe. We need to know it and we need to believe it. It's also a faith that's worth striving for. I mean, this is a precious thing we have, the good news of Jesus Christ. People in this world today need good news. It's also a faith that must not be compromised. I just read an article the other day about how the president of a seminary out east has said that Jesus didn't rise from the grave. Didn't believe in heaven. Didn't believe that prayer even works. I'm thinking, how can you be the president of a so-called Christian seminary if you don't believe these things? You can't compromise it. You can't water it down. And our faith in what we believe and hold true is the source of our unity. And it's a faith that needs to be preached to all the ends of the earth. The Bible says to all nations. And again, if you want to look at the Greek, it says tech ethnoi. It means to all ethnic groups. Now, I've preached in about 13 different countries ever since I've lived, lived here in Belvedere. And I know that when I'm in Nigeria, I can't even begin to tell you how many ethnic groups there are. I'm going to be headed to Ghana sometime in late August and early September to, to uh, lead some uh, leadership, Christian leadership things for the pastors of the Lutheran Church of Ghana. And, you know, even there, there are different variations of people. Now, we need this because the world is full of Christians in retreat. We need to preach to all of these people to find ways to bring the gospel to bear in their lives. Now, surprisingly, the church has often retreated rather than advanced. And too many believers are really kind of intimidated when they're asked tough questions. The purpose of the grind on Saturday night is to tell people, ask us the hard questions. Let's talk about the hard things in life. And when people come and they say, who is this Jesus that you guys talk about? You better be prepared to answer that question. Or we don't think church makes any sense at all. Why are you guys doing this? Well, we're going to tell you why we feel we're going to do this. and We're going to point you back to scripture. Well, what makes you think your scripture is all my word? We're going to explain to them. Ask hard questions. Look for hard questions. Get the message out. But see, as much as anything... This explains this kind of moral crisis that I think that we have in America today. The other side has won far too many battles, uh, simply because I think many times as Christians, as Christian churches, we have we have just surrendered without a fight. We don't want to do battle with people who disagree with us. But God's word to the church is always go forward. 
I mean, that's the one thing I, I want to challenge you. That's the one thing. Go forward. And as far as I know, I, I, I've never seen in the Bible where it said, why don't you pack up your bags and retreat? I can't find that in the Bible. Mark 16, 15. Go and preach the gospel. Mark or Matthew 28, 19. Go and make disciples. Even the first two letters of the gospel spell what? Any spellers in here? Go. There you go. And reading the biblical narrative, I don't see any time where first century Christians kind of wrung their hands in despair and said, oh, no, look what the world is coming to. I think instead they said, wow, look what's coming to us in this world. I said in the church service not long ago when somebody asked, well, what do you think about all of these people coming across our borders? I said, you may not like my answer. And I said, part of my answer might be this. If we are not willing to go to them with the gospel, maybe Jesus is saying, I'm going to send them to you. You may want to wrestle with that one a while. Blessed are they who are so excited about Jesus that they just can't keep quiet about it and want to talk to anybody and everybody about it. Here's impact three. Speak without fear. Let's read this verse together. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. Now, I love these sober words of God. I mean, Paul doesn't sugarcoat the truth here. He said, you're going to be opposed if you stand up for Jesus Christ. So speak up anyway. I mean, sooner or later, people are not going to like your message. I have never deluded myself in thinking in 35 years of being a pastor that people love every sermon I've ever preached. In fact, I've had a few people at the door tell me, well, I didn't like that one very much. I said, wait till next Sunday. Um, I still remember a person who came up to me, and this is going to be kind of controversial, after church and said, uh, when I preached on right to life, they said, that's really a great message. I wish a whole bunch of other people had been here. And I said, yeah, it would have been nice. And she said, but you're never going to preach about gambling, are you? And I said, why not? And she said, well, because when we win, so does this church. So guess what I preached about the next Sunday? (laughs) We need to, you know, you're going to run into strong opposition. But I just say, so what? Keep preaching Jesus. I mean, if they hated Jesus, well, John 15, 15, 18 says they're going to hate you as well. They crucified him. Can you expect anything any better? See, this verse also contains a truth you may have never considered before. It says, opposition to the gospel reveals spiritual reality. And I think this is the sign here of verse 28. When people oppose you because of your Christianity, they have drawn a line. And you can be sure of two things. One is that if you were hanging on to the honest-to-goodness Christian testimony, your place in heaven is assured. But if people are going to oppose that Christian testimony... Until they change their minds, they're headed in the wrong direction. And I don't think we should be surprised at the starkness of those words. That's precisely the meaning. Genuine believers are are proved genuine by the quality of their um, opposition. And I would say to you, friends, if no one ever criticizes you, if no one ever opposes you, if you never make waves because you're a Christ follower, if everybody is all happy-clappy with your Christian faith all the time, 
then maybe something is either wrong with your faith or it's with the people you hang around with. Now, let me say it very simply. True believers annoy the world. They really do. They they annoy the world because they stand as a rebuke to everything that this world stands for. So when we say that Jesus is the only way, they call us arrogant. If we declare you need to be born again, they're going to they're going to call us fanatics. If you say the Bible is the word of God, somebody might say, well, you're just an ignorant hillbilly. Now, by the way, in the Ozarks, where I live in Branson, we don't use that word. We're, we use the politically correct term, Ozark Americans. <laughs> and it kind of goes this way. If we say, I, I know I'm going to go to heaven, they will accuse us of thinking that we're better than everyone else. And so it goes. And we annoy the world simply because we are citizens of heaven. And we live by different principles, the principles that are found in the clear word of God. See, Paul's advice is simply don't be frightened. Don't be scared. And the Greek word for frightened is, is it refers to a horse that's spooked by something small and it kind of rears up and wants to back away. But don't be surprised if somebody criticizes you for being a Christ follower. It happens all the time. See, when trouble comes, we need to remain calmly, courageous with this unconquerable spirit because we have Christ living in us. We are to speak without fear, knowing that some people won't like what we have to say. And when trouble comes, we, we just move on. It's better to be persecuted than to be the persecutor. Which, by the way, is one instance where it's better to receive than to give. See, Jesus pronounced the blessing upon those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. And that kind of persecution is a pretty good sign that you might be a genuine believer. Impact number four. Let's read this verse together. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. I hope you notice the two gifts that are in that verse. First of all, there is the gift of faith. And what a marvelous gift that is. Later today, there's going to be two baptisms. I love baptisms. I'd, I'd rather do a baptism than anything else other than perhaps to celebrate somebody's heavenly homecoming. Weddings, not so much anymore. Baptism, I love it because we believe, and here's part of our, our, our faith belief, is that over there at that font, the combination of water and the word ignites faith in the heart of that little one. And what a, every time we ever do this, I've made congregations say, the minute you see that water going on there and it says, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that congregation ought to be standing up and giving that baby and everybody else a standing ovation. You have just seen something you just don't see every day. I mean, what an unbelievable thing. The gift of faith, that you have faith. I believe in Jesus Christ. We stood before the Apostles' Creed. We acknowledge that. But there's also a second gift here that you may have not have noticed. It's not a gift you probably want. It is called the gift of what? Suffering. We're also to suffer for him. This is the gift. It's the gift, though, that nobody wants. I mean, would you like to change the world for Jesus? Would you like to make a difference individually, collectively as a congregation? Well, here's just that one thing again. We'll come back to that point. This one thing that's on Paul's heart that we need to remember. 
You're a citizen of heaven. Live like it. See, you can impact this world if you can just remember to do four different things, which ought to appear up here sooner or later. If I keep, there we go, pressing that often enough. Stand without division. Strive without compromise. Speak without fear. Sacrifice without shame. May God help all of us make a difference by the way we live, whether it be today, tomorrow, or for the next 150 years, or forever. May God continue to bless you as you celebrate making a difference as a congregation. Amen. Amen.